BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey guys, it's Jordan. Welcome back to the Balance Blonde Podcast, Soul on Fire. So I'm doing something a little different today. And this is something I decided I wanted to implement into the podcast and have probably what will end up being once a month, maybe a little bit more often, solo podcast episodes where I address a topic that you guys want to hear about or that you ask me about on social media or in the Soul on Fire Facebook tribe because I get so many good recommendations in there. And there's just a lot of topics that I want to cover on the podcast that don't make sense in the normal interviews that come out every Wednesday because I want those interviews even though they're conversations to really highlight each guest's story because they have so much to share with us and it's always so exciting to have them on. But there are so many other topics that I am dying to talk to you guys about. And I guess that it's not surprising that I blog for a living because clearly I like to share. And I think now that I've been podcasting for more than six months, probably more than seven months now. I think we're on episode 33, 34, something like that. Podcasting has become a new way to express myself, just like blogging has always been. And it's been so much fun to be able to share my journey with you guys. And I know that a lot of people listen to this podcast who haven't necessarily followed my blog for a long time, or maybe you've never seen my blog. And that's awesome too. I love that people find this podcast and come to it in all sorts of ways. So I thought that it would be kind of cool to do these solo episodes so that I can share a little bit more about myself and you guys can learn where I'm coming from so that when you listen to the interviews, you have a well-rounded idea of who The Balanced Blonde is outside of the podcast sphere and outside of really just the blogging sphere in general. And we'll just chat. So today's topic that I wanted to start with is a difficult one to talk about, but I thought that it would be interesting to share with you guys because people generally, I think, listen to my podcast and read my blog and follow my Instagram and just assume that everything is wonderful and happy and the sun is always shining and I'm always doing yoga on the beach. And while it's true that I choose to live a very happy lifestyle and choosing happiness every single morning is a choice. And um, at least I believe that it is. And I do live a happy life. I have a lot of amazing things in my life. I have 
Hudson, who's sitting next to me, the most loving cat son in the whole world. I have an f- amazing family, um, madly in love with someone who you've probably seen on my Instagram and you have heard him on the podcast and I have great friends. So my point there is I'm surrounded by people who are just so supportive and they are my system. They're the people that I go to and they keep me sane when I'm going through a hard time. I also have a really intensive self-care practice and Maybe you've noticed from following me that I I have a routine. I really stick to my routine. I have a very specific morning routine. I do practice yoga every day. I meditate. I read a lot of books from mentors of mine. Um, I work intensively on connecting to the universe and connecting to myself in all sorts of ways. I go to therapy and... I, uh, I have a lot of <laughs> professionals in my life from functional medicine doctors to acupuncturists to bodywork specialists to Ayurvedic practitioners. And there is a reason, I think, why I have gone down this path of being so completely immersed and obsessed with taking care of myself and choosing happiness. And I think the reason for that is I have experienced quite a bit of trauma in my life. And I think everyone has. So here's the thing about trauma. Trauma is different for everyone. No two stories are the same. No two experiences are ever going to be the same. And I recognize that I am a very fortunate person. I have just so many things to be grateful for. And I grew up in a very idyllic town with the most supportive parents and I had a very wonderful childhood. So I'm not telling this story to uh, complain or to even put out the notion that what I've been through is as bad as it gets because that is so not true. But I think that I've learned a lot about trauma in the last couple of years and especially with my recent studies on kundalini and I've really learned that no matter what your upbringing was like, no matter what you inherently were born feeling like or the way that you were raised, if you experience a traumatic event at any point, it can get lodged inside of your nervous system in a way that it can take so much work, so much energy, so much self-love and self-care to work through it and to get past that trauma and really to experience a free life where you can breathe and not suffer from anxiety and fear and depression and a lot of things that a lot of us pick up along the way after we experience trauma. So I don't know why it struck me that this is the topic that I wanted to talk about for my first ever solo podcast, but I was recently home in Sacramento and that often brings up a lot of feelings for me because that is where the trauma took place and the really the first difficult traumatic event that I ever experienced in my life was when I was living there and um, 
I started thinking about it and just thought this is something that I would like to talk about on my podcast because I think so many people have experienced this type of pain and suffering and it's really easy to feel alone when you've experienced any sort of difficulty or depression um, or been through a trauma and or lost someone that you really love. So I thought that I would share my story to hopefully make you feel less alone, also to shed some light on who I am as a person and share something really deeply personal that I've never exactly put out there in full before. And also to kind of show you guys the steps that I took to overcome trauma and adversity and really turn it into art or turn it into everything that I do now. And when I say art, I mean, I channel it through yoga. I channel it through writing. I channel it through almost everything I do because the situation that took place will always be a part of me. And what I learned in that experience will always be a part of me also. And I think it led me toward being a very deeply introspective and creative person, especially because it happened at a relatively young age. So instead of harping on and on about what it was before telling you what it was, I will just dive into the story and tell you all about it. And I also just wanted to preface this by saying, I am no expert on trauma. So this is just my personal experience. And if this doesn't resonate, if the tips that I give are, you know, if you don't think that they'll work for you, I totally get that. This was just one person's experience. And I think sometimes it can be really healing to hear one person's experience, even if it's totally different from yours. So I will tell you the story. When I was 16 years old, I was living in Sacramento, California, where I had been living my whole life and continued to live there until I graduated from high school and moved to LA. But I was living in Sacramento and I was always the type of person who really felt a lot of emotions. I've since learned that I'm a highly sensitive person and I would always feel things really hard. And even though I had such a wonderful upbringing with my parents, if my parents would fight or if my dad and I would butt heads, which happened every single day, I would just take that really hard. I would experience these intense emotions of just serious deep feeling. And looking back, I'm glad that that is all a part of me because that has also enabled me to channel that deep feeling into everything else that I do now. But I was always feeling hard even when things were good. And then I, when I was 15, started dating a friend of mine named Tommy. Hi, Tommy, if you're listening. I did ask Tommy's permission to talk about this on the podcast. And um, Tommy and I, we met at the movies when we were basically in middle school and we were both actually there on dates, quote unquote, because we were so young with other people. But that's when we met. And uh, I got gum in my hair at that movie that we were at and Tommy bought a Reese's peanut butter cup to try to use the peanut butter to get the gum out of my hair. And that was our first time meeting each other. And I just remember thinking this person is just so cute and so 
kind. And I saw this kindness in his eyes that I had never seen in anyone, anyone that I knew at that point in my life. And it's just this deep, genuine, radiating kindness that if you've seen it in someone's eyes, then you probably know what I'm talking about. And it's very striking. And for someone who feels as deeply as I do and come to find out as he does, it's just something that you notice and it's beautiful and it makes you feel less alone and it makes you feel so connected. And I felt that with him the very first time that I met him and we were incredibly young. And then um, after that, I was dating someone else for a while and Tommy and I were, we were very much falling in love with each other. We started talking online all the time. Uh, That was like back in the day of instant messenger. So we would instant message back and forth and we started hanging out he would come over. He would walk to my house after school because he went to the public school by my house. And I went to a small liberal arts school called Country Day that was really, really tiny. And he would come visit me at school sometimes, like right after school. And we just became the closest friends who were falling in love with each other. And basically fast forward to when we started dating each other It was kind of one of those experiences where everything was just so magically, wonderfully new. We were so young and so feeling these intense feelings of love and emotion and just really feeling like, wow, I really have someone who's here for me, who gets me, who has this insane kindness and sensitivity about him. I'm so lucky. That's how I felt every day. And we, all of our friends, um, so many other high schoolers in Sacramento would tell us that they looked up to us for our relationship. And Tommy was friends with all my girlfriends, which I loved. And um, my girlfriends would go over there and hang out with him when I was out of town. And I would get pictures of them. And this was like back in the day before people could even text pictures back and forth, but I would see pictures on MySpace and MySpace bulletins. And it was all just so fun. And I have such fond memories of that time. And we had, like all couples do, even young couples, a lot of ups and downs. We, um, we were both highly sensitive and we both felt a lot. And this was also at a really pivotal age where people are trying new things. And I tried alcohol before Tommy did. I stupidly took nine shots of vodka on a New Year's Eve, uh, the first time I ever drank. And Tommy was in Ohio visiting his extended family and all a bunch of my friends and I, we drank and we also smoked marijuana uh, on the same night. And this was the first time I had done any of this stuff. And needless to say, my mom was really upset when she picked us up from the party and I was in a lot of trouble. And Tommy was really upset because he couldn't believe that I would try any of that. And he especially couldn't believe that I would try it without him. So he was pretty mad at me. I was grounded by my parents for a month and so were most of my friends. And by the time I was done being grounded, uh, I had a bit of a wild phase. And I would say that being grounded 
probably isn't the best punishment for someone who is on the verge of total rebellion because once you're not grounded anymore, you kind of just want to get out there and do all that stuff again. So I was drinking a lot, um, probably not any more than a lot of other high school kids, but I was partying and drinking and uh, I was safe. I told my parents actually at a young age, um, I'm going to drink and I want to be safe and I don't want to lie to you. So can you just let me do that? And I'll never drive under the influence or get in anyone's car, but I just need to be honest. So that's a whole aside. Um, I'm getting off track, but to get back on track, uh, Tommy started drinking and trying a couple different types of drugs around that time also. And that was interesting because I was really gravitating more toward alcohol and I really hated drugs that I tried. I had a really bad experience. I would get really paranoid and I didn't like them. And meanwhile, Tommy was trying more stuff and as I mentioned, he did go to a different school than me where drugs were a lot easier to find. Um, I wouldn't have even known where to get any of this stuff, but Tommy was trying some stuff. And I remember we were at one of his dances. We were like 15 and a half probably. And I found out while we were there that he was on ecstasy. And that was really hard for me because as much of a quote unquote wild phase as I was going through, I still viewed things like ecstasy and Xanax and cocaine and everything hard, all hard drugs. I viewed those as really bad and really just what the bad kids did and really highly addictive is how I viewed them. So that scared me and I was worried about his brain cells and I was just kind of upset. Like, why do you feel like you need to do this? Are you not having fun just as a normal person drinking alcohol in high school and already doing these other things? Why do you feel like you have to do ecstasy? Does that mean that, you know, I'm not fun enough for you the way that I am or what's going on. Um, And then I would get really hurt because he was doing these drugs with other people and not really telling me about it. He would kind of tell me afterwards and um, things started getting a little slippery from there, not only with the drugs, but Tommy was starting to experience some depression. And um, well, this was before we could ever even call it depression, but I could tell something was going on and I really thought he was depressed and he would get silent sometimes and um, was really looking to these drugs more and more and more. So I started to get pretty worried and we broke up, but we remained very close and there were a lot of reasons behind why we broke up, but a lot of it had to do with our differing lifestyles and how hard I was taking it that he was not doing so well. Um, but we were so madly in love. It's, it's hard to describe because it's the type of first love that hits you so hard that it is the only thing in the whole world that matters. And I can't even tell you not to jump ahead, but that feeling lasted for so long. And even though we weren't together, um, we, we broke up when 
things started getting bad, we couldn't have been closer. And there was no way that I could have dated anybody else seriously or he could because we were just so connected and so deeply intertwined with each other. And things really did start getting out of hand and I was getting really worried. And Tommy did tell me uh, that he was feeling suicidal and I told my mom and... um she was very worried and we all, I mean, everyone was kind of rallying around, getting pretty worried. And I also think none of us knew how bad it actually was. And then one day, um, yeah, when I was 16 and Tommy was about to turn 16, this was December and his birthday's in December. I had a play. I was in a play at country day my high school called the learned ladies and I was the character Henriette and I was the lead and it was this huge deal for me and um I had at the time gotten really into acting and it was my first lead role and I was so proud and excited to perform in front of everyone that I loved and Tommy was supposed to be there with his family one Sunday matinee and they weren't there and I was very upset and everyone tried to tell me, well, why why are you surprised? Tommy's not reliable. He's on drugs. Of course, he didn't show up, all that kind of stuff. So I tried to kind of shove it down that I was beyond devastated that he didn't come. And I was confused about why his family wasn't there. And later that evening while I was getting ready for my science tutor to come over, I checked my MySpace because that's what we used at the time and had a message from Tommy. And at first I didn't want to open it. I thought it was probably just some kind of apology about why he didn't come. And I was still so mad and hurt that he wasn't there and so mad and hurt about everything. And the fact that I had been with him until 2 a.m. the night before and he was snorting lines of cocaine off of the countertop and it was all very difficult. I did end up opening the MySpace message and it said that he decided to kill himself and um, that he would miss me forever, love me forever. I was the only girl he ever loved, the only girl he ever would love and goodbye and I'll be looking down on you from heaven and the words verbatim I will remember for the rest of my life, um, but I will keep them a little bit more personal because it was truly like poetry and um, no one wants to receive that type of poetry, but it is. He is a beautiful writer and um, I received that and it just stunned me into complete and total terror and I was just, I was paralyzed um, and screaming and I was screaming in my house, Tommy's dead. Oh my God, Tommy's dead. My parents came running back. And of course my dad was yelling at me um, as he does in frantic situations. And we were all running around like chickens with our heads cut off. And we got to the phone, we called his house. The His house phone was off the hook and Basically, my mom said, well, get in the car. We're driving to his house. We need to find out what's going on. 
So we got into the car. It was absolutely pouring, pouring, pouring rain outside. And we drove just the half a mile or so to his house. And I was in complete hysterics. Couldn't imagine what my life was going to be like if he was dead. And I know my mom was feeling terrified too. And some something washed over me in the car. And I said, you know what? I think he's fine. I think he's alive. He's going to be fine. This is all going to get figured out. I just feel like he is because if he's not, I would know because I feel so connected to him. I would know if he was no longer on this earth. That's what I believed. So we got to his house. We ran up to the door, rang the doorbell. It took a little bit, but his dad came to the door and his little sister, and they told us that Tommy was in the hospital and that he was alive and that after slitting his wrists and taking a bottle of pills, he wound up walking into his parents' bedroom and asking to go to the hospital. So he did save his own life by deciding to live, although he, from what I've heard from him, and I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, doesn't remember going into his parents' room and consciously didn't think that that's what he wanted. He, that's just what ended up happening. So under the influence of this whole bottle of pills that he took and having slit his wrists with a steak knife, he decided that he wanted to live. And he went to the hospital they glued up his wrists with this crazy skin glue kind of stuff that maybe some of you have seen or used for certain reasons. And he was there on a 5150 hold for a couple days. And then he was released home. And I was, well, so grateful that he lived, so happy that he was alive, but so confused, so traumatized by the thought that he had died and that things had gotten that bad and that I had spent 30 minutes of my life thinking that Tommy was dead until I found out that he wasn't. And basically my whole entire childhood uh, shifted at that point, my adolescence, my childhood view of the world was gone. After that, I viewed drugs and alcohol, really drugs, as just the worst thing that could happen to a person, how it could change their brain chemistry and potentially bring out this raging, horrible mental illness type of depression that would make someone want to die. And this being the kindest person I had ever known, the person that I was the most in love with, cared the most about in the whole world. If that could happen to him, I was just scared about humanity and growing up and about what all of this meant. And I was really, 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 really struggling after that. I wanted to see Tommy so desperately. I would make my mom call his house every day to see if I could go see him, if he was home yet, if I could, I just needed to see him. I needed to. I felt like I was going to lose my mind. And keep in mind, I 
was and still am a very highly sensitive person. And I think my whole entire nervous system was on fire. I felt like my nerves were exposed to the air and everything was just inducing severe panic inside of me. And um, I don't know if this might sound, I don't know if people can relate to this or if this sounds like it was a really, really major reaction, um, but it was. And that was my reaction to this specific experience. I was young and I didn't have the life tools in place to deal with this the way that I would deal with something like this now. And it would still be incredibly hard, but I didn't have those tools. I didn't know what to do. I hadn't even started doing yoga yet, really. I had nothing to draw back on except for my family and my friends. And I did talk about this a lot and I did have a therapist, but nothing. I couldn't shake this absolute just fear of losing him for real because then, of course, I I didn't. I didn't want to let him out of my sight. I took on this massive responsibility, self-induced, not by anybody else, to make sure that Tommy would live a full life and never successfully commit suicide. So I did get to see him. Um, I think it was like five days after he left the hospital and it was his birthday. And I just remember going upstairs at his house and crawling into bed with him and saying, everything's going to be okay. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I was hysterical and calm all at the same time. And I just remember he said, okay, like, okay, if you say it's going to be okay, then okay. And that reaction, I'll just never forget it because it surprised me a little bit because um, I don't know. I guess I just didn't know what to expect. And I remember him saying, okay. And as if like me saying that it was going to be okay, that he could accept that. And I really did then think, all right, well then this is, I'm doing this. I I told him it's going to be okay. And I'm going to make sure that it's okay and that everything gets better. And that this is rock bottom and there's only going out from here. And, um, well, After that, things proved to be difficult still, and there were a lot of drugs, a lot of addiction, a lot of (sighs) rehab, and um, I mean, Tommy wasn't really able to go back to school as normal. He started doing home studies around this time and trying out going to this charter school, ended up really sticking with the home studies only. I hated going to school because I was full of panic uh, at my little school, which was so tiny. Everybody knew what had happened. And it wasn't that I didn't want anyone to know. It's just that I felt like I was very much under a microscope and people were watching me and people knew that I was very upset and very fragile over this and that I was always worried. And I brought Tommy to all of our school functions and our school dances. And I always at some point found out that there were drugs involved and he was high and we would get in these huge fights. And it's hard to describe because 
looking back, some people might say, well, why did you choose to stay involved? It's not like he was your family member. You could have, you could have disassociated and me being who I am and especially who I was at that time, that was just never going to happen. I cared so much and I loved him so much, so hard. There was no letting go. That wasn't an option for me because I had made up my mind that that was not going to happen, that I was destined for a life of making sure that he was okay. And that's what I wanted. And of course, that's a very young, very narrow-minded worldview. Of course, I wasn't put on this earth to only take care of Tommy. Tommy was put on this earth to take care of Tommy. And I was put on this earth to do to take care of Jordan and a lot of other things. And same with him. So this was just my young viewpoint. Like I said, I wasn't equipped to deal with what was happening. The only way I felt like I could deal was to try to control it, try so hard to control it. And my way of controlling it was by being a really big part of his life and making it known, making it clear that I didn't want him doing drugs and that if I found out he was doing drugs, we would not be on good terms. And all this stuff. And I would beg him all the time to go to rehab. And he did a few times. And I mean, I'll just touch on this because I feel like I'm talking so much about myself. His family was, of course, involved and um, they love Tommy very much. And I think we all felt very helpless. And being the people who were in Tommy's most inner circle, who cared about him the most, we just didn't know what to do. And I think we all just thought it would get better. It would get better with time. And if you could shield him from wanting to kill himself again, try, then we'll be okay. So fast forward, I went to college. I went to LMU here in LA and Tommy stayed in Sacramento And of course, that proved to be a whole different time in our lives. And I started to see what it was like to be in a different environment and not be wrapped up in worry every single day. And and he didn't want me to be ever wrapped up in all that worry. But it was my freshman and sophomore year of college that were maybe the hardest in terms of dealing with the trauma of the original suicide attempt and then there were more and I won't get into as many details or else this would be a really long podcast and I do want to get to present day so I can tell you guys how I did end up coping with all of this but there were more suicide attempts. Uh, One of them in particular when I was a sophomore in college was the hardest for me and maybe the hardest for Tommy. Um, because he was living in San Francisco, he was living alone, and that was just a recipe for disaster. Although it seemed like a good idea at the time for him to move out and to be in San Francisco doing something new. He was really addicted to Xanax at this time and a lot of other stuff. Um, names I haven't even heard of. I think they're very similar to meth. And Tommy told me well, we were in deep conversation over this, that he was going to overdose on purpose and that he didn't want to live anymore. 
And I made up my mind at that time to not be the one sole reason that he that he lived. So I didn't want to step in and say, no, I won't let that happen. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call your parents. I didn't want to be that person because that had been my life for the last several years. And I felt like if Tommy doesn't want to live, that is Tommy's choice. And I mean, I won't be able to live with myself one way or the other because losing him will be horrible and having him alive but barely alive because of his condition is horrible too so um I don't know I was in a total tizzy I think I was like on the verge of seriously having a lot a lot of mental problems myself because this was so challenging I was in a very 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 difficult headspace at this time I had such bad insomnia. I was never sleeping, literally never, ever. And my choices were skewed because of that. And he did try to overdose. I spent again about 12 hours thinking that he had died. I was hysterical. I was mourning him beginning to like it was hitting me what was what had happened and I did have the chance to say goodbye and then I learned from his dad and and then him that um he had lived and he his system was so highly tolerant now to the drugs that he had lived through what he took and I can't even remember now how much it was it was so much and I think it was I don't want to be wrong. I don't, was it maybe Subutex? I don't know. It was, it was really heavy, whatever he took. Maybe it was Xanax and like 24 pills or something like that. And he did live. You can imagine what that has done now to his, to his body and to his brain. Just think about it. So he lived and I, then tried to separate myself. I mean, we both tried to separate ourselves from each other and from the situation for a long time. So keep in mind, that was sophomore year of college. That was 2011. Um, And after that was, I think, when we started to separate a little bit more and I started dating other people. I was always very, 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 very wrapped up still in Tommy and worried about Tommy, caring about Tommy, madly in love with Tommy because when he was doing okay, he was literally my soulmate life partner back then. And um, there was just so much going on and my parents were really upset with me all the time, all the time because they felt like I was choosing to be wrapped up in this when I could choose not to be. And that's just not the way that it worked for me back then. I didn't know what else to do. And I tried to do other things. I tried to distract myself. And don't get me wrong, I led a very full life at that time. I was in college. I studied abroad. I was in a sorority. I made lifelong friends in college. I was an English major and a journalism minor. And I applied to grad school and I got in and I moved to New York and I did accomplish a lot, but that was me pushing past the trauma every single day 
of really feeling just so helpless and so confused and feeling like, oh my God, I need help. I need help because I cannot function because I, because these drugs have ruined the life of this person that I love. And he has just the most severe case of clinical depression that I have still to this day ever laid eyes on. And how can you see someone that you love suffer like that? And what I have learned since then is that seeing someone else suffer, seeing someone I love suffer is like a huge trigger for my personal type of sensitivity. It's really hard for me. And I have learned in the last few years that that is part of the reason why it was so deeply challenging for me to deal with this trauma and to move past it and to really also give Tommy the space to live his life. And at a certain point, and this is when I moved to New York right after college, it became crystal clear to me that being involved in Tommy's life in the way that I was, was selfish for me. Um, and it wasn't helpful to him anymore the way that it had been when we were younger. I was not, I was so selfish. I mean, I didn't think I was and I didn't mean to be, but I wouldn't let him live his life. I wouldn't let go because I wanted to make sure he was okay. And I wanted to be able to call him whenever I needed him. And he was my best friend and my listening ear and my coping mechanism and my everything. And I didn't want to let go of him. And I knew how hard it was to let go of him because I had tried dozens and dozens of times. We had both tried and it was hard. And every time I thought that I could let go, I just couldn't. And then I felt like so trapped and I'm sure he did too. I don't want to speak for him, but we had a really, really, really hard time separating from each other. And I did. I mean, I had another serious boyfriend at the end of college. And so of course, Tommy and I were very separated at that time. We didn't even really talk. Um, but there was just this level of closeness regard, regardless, this connectivity that was always there. In New York, I think, is when I really had my big, huge break <laughs> breakdown of we can't do this anymore and I need to let you live your life and I need to live my life and we are not going to be the happiest, fullest versions of ourselves if we hang on to this. So we mutually decided to separate and let go and um, we weren't dating, but separate separation meant like no talking and no leaning on each other all the time. And this always just felt so hard and so unfair because I was just so envious of people who had someone that they loved who they could have in their life and talk to without feeling like they were doing something wrong. And then I, over here, I had my best friend, first love, everything. And I really wasn't supposed to talk to him. My family would be mad at me if I was heavily involved. My friends didn't approve. Eventually his friends didn't approve. And we both felt like we were doing something wrong by being really close because it was detrimental to both of us, um, both of our growth forward. And that now was three years ago. And since then, there have been two highly traumatic 
um, events in my own family that have really put everything into perspective for me um, in terms of trauma. But that's those are long stories and I will talk about them if you guys want to hear them. But I feel that I personally have grown so much since that time when I was living in New York and we were still so heavily involved with each other. And um, we have remained close. We have remained friends. And I know if I need anything at any time, Tommy is there for me and... I know he knows the same and we have had all sorts of situations and back and forth in the last couple of years alone, um, including going on a retreat to Costa Rica and me finding out that he was withdrawing from heroin while we were there or a drug that is in the heroin family. Things, yeah, that I wouldn't wish on anyone to deal with with someone that you love and I don't want to speak to drug addicts and what they go through because an addiction I've witnessed it firsthand with him is so painful and so challenging and such a struggle and I'm sure there are people listening who have been in that position and have been the ones who have hurt their family members or friends or loved ones or been hurt um, in that situation. And I can never speak to what that's like because I, although I have an addictive personality to some things, I have never been interested in drugs or alcohol in that way. And um, yeah, it's been really hard. And to this day, I go home to Sacramento and I see things that we used to do when we were young Tommy and I, and um, it breaks my heart. It kills me. It crushes me all over my whole body. Like I have chills over my whole body thinking about it because I think it's so unfair that someone's life can be so taken away from them by by drugs and by addiction and depression and all this stuff. And I hope and pray with all of my... Um, all of my yogic heart that Tommy does find happiness and resolve in this life. And I have always had just the utmost faith about that. And I don't want to tell someone else's story, which is his, about how he's doing now. But I know that he would be comfortable with me at least saying that things are okay. They've been better and they've been worse. And I will say on a personal level, I had hoped and wished that by now, a decade later, things would be a lot better for him and that he would be in a happier place and a more fun functional place. And so that's hard. You don't ever want to see someone you love unable to live their best life. And because of that, and a lot of other things, but mainly because of that, I am so passionate about inspiring people to live their happiest, healthiest life and find the practices, the self-care, the exercise, the wellness, the nourishment to be them and to be happy and to be full. And via Tommy's mental illness, I feel that I have developed 
mental illnesses uh, over the last 10 years that I have worked through. And of course, a lot of you know about my orthorexia, my eating disorder um, that I don't, I don't know how I feel about that being a mental illness. I, I don't know one way or the other because it's different for everybody. But yeah, I suffered from depression, anxiety, a lot of PTSD, a ton of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I still suffer from PTSD and I had a huge bout of it just a week or so ago. And that's really why I decided to do this episode and to really shift gears and explain a little bit more about how I overcame the trauma other than just letting go and separating from Tommy eventually is um, I really dove into the world of yoga and spirituality and taking care of myself and Maybe now you guys can see that I, when I do things like a full 10-day Panchakarma, the Ayurvedic treatment that I did last year, or when I run a marathon, or when I get really heavily obsessed with kundalini yoga, or when I go to sweaty vinyasa classes twice a day sometimes for weeks on end, this is all therapy to me. It's all self-care. It's all what I have found I need in order to breathe, in order to stay grounded, stay calm, be myself, be there for the people who are in my life and to shed the anxiety and the stress and the um, pain that comes along with being a human and getting over traumatic events. And I don't know what you thought of my whole story that I just told, but I know that every trauma is different and every type of pain is different. And maybe if I was 26 and going through the suicide attempt of a loved one, I would do it all differently. I would react all differently, but At the time, I was young and I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to do and I couldn't deal with it. I simply couldn't. I struggled so hard and I still, I have these feelings and emotions bubble up inside of me that rise to the very top that sometimes I'm just like, what the F is going on? Why do I feel this way? Because I have worked through, I've spent so much time working through all of that. Um, but life comes in ebbs and flows and it's a journey and there is no, in my opinion, full healing from trauma. There's only moving forward every single day, living your best life, choosing happiness every single morning and then again in the afternoon and the night so that it sticks with you all day and finding those practices that really work for you. So for me, I wake up in the morning, I meditate, I stretch, I cuddle with Hudson, I light candles, I burn incense like sage and Palo Santo, I spray my apartment with Thieves, this amazing blend of essential oils, I meditate with my crystals, I do kundalini breath work, I always, always, always 
go to a vinyasa class during the day when I am stressed. And lately I have just, like I said, I've been having this bout of maybe it's PTSD, maybe it's just residual anxiety from having a lot going on. And I, it's a non-negotiable for me. I go to yoga and it's not exercise. It's not, uh, oh, I'm lucky if I get there so I can get my flow on. It is therapy. It's self-care. And if I don't go, I risk not being well later. So I go and um, I think it's really amazing that yoga can be a space for us like that. Um, going to the studio or just getting down on your yoga mat, it can be life-changing. It can totally change the game for you. And it's not yoga for everybody. Some people don't find it therapeutic the way that I do, but maybe it's running or going for a walk outside, just getting in nature. Nature is proven to make us feel more grounded, to connect us with the universe, to actually shift our nervous system to more of a state of sympathetic energy instead of the parasympathetic fight or flight type of anxiety that we feel in sometimes more urban settings or when we're running all over the place and feeling stressed out. So that I write. (laughs) That's why I started my blog. I also journal, I stretch, I take care of myself, I really fuel myself with nourishing food. I was reminded this past week when I was having all those emotions flooding through me that nourishing my body with really clean, bountiful food from the earth is so important. Um, When I say from the earth, I don't mean just vegan food, I mean like clean sources, food that comes from a loving place. And for me, usually that's warm foods. I like a lot of quinoa, black beans, steamed kale, um, the kind of stuff that is just really nourishing. Kitchari, which is part of the Panchakarma diet, is always very nourishing. And I read books that inspire me and lift me up. I'm currently reading Guru Jagat's Invincible Living book, which I find so inspiring and has tons of breathwork practices in there. I read Gabby Bernstein's Kundalini Meditations and her book, The Universe Has Your Back. I have all my go-tos and I also talk to people. I lean on people. As a highly sensitive person, I've learned that sharing my soul and really being authentic for who I am with the people around me makes me feel the best. So I've learned that when my authenticity brushes up against, you know, fear or anxiety or something that it can't get past, that's when the unhappiness really creeps in and I don't want that to happen. So I choose to just be authentic and share my truth, even if it sounds crazy or even if it winds up sounding like me saying, hey, this might sound crazy, but this is how I feel. And I just want to say that. Um, And that's okay. And people who are meant to be in your life will understand and they'll get it. And you can always share yourself with the people who love you. And if they're not used to it, just tell them, hey, I have a lot to share. I have a lot to say. And you don't always have to listen to me, but do you right now have the bandwidth to listen to 
what is true for me. And I find that to be so healing. And um, I definitely have a handful of people in my life who I could call morning or middle of the night who would listen. And I find that so, so, so calming and amazing. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that's pretty much my story. A lot of my coping mechanisms. That's also why I take so many baths. (laughs) I take a lot of warm baths and people message me on Instagram and say, uh, you take more baths than anyone I know. And I, I know I do. I take them pretty much every day because they do calm my nervous system down. They get me ready to sleep. They kind of cleanse my soul from the whole day. They're a good place to read, good place to unwind and to really just close out the whole story with Tommy. It's a journey. It's always going to be a journey. And if you have someone who you love who is an addict, then I feel for you. It's really hard. And that person is doing the best that they can. And to put unrealistic expectations on them, even though we do expect and hope the world for them, um, is really challenging for them sometimes. And it's not always the best for everybody. It might not be the best for them. It's certainly not the easiest for us to have these expectations that are never met or that just frequently aren't met. So that's hard. And I know that there are a lot of resources out there for people who struggle with addiction and people who have loved ones who struggle with addiction. And I will always care deeply for Tommy. He is one of my childhood best friends. He was my first love and I'm never going to stop loving him uh, even though we are not meant to be together and our lives are better off lived separately. We both know that now and that's hard. I never thought I would say that even just a few years ago, but our lives are better off lived separately we experience life differently. And also it's not fair to either of us to live in the past. We want to live in the present and be excited about the future. And that's really impossible to do in our case um, after everything that we've been through if we were to talk all the time or to spend a lot of time together because we just haven't had enough positive experiences in the present day to make up for that. And so we always end up feeling a lot of what we felt in the past and that's hard. And Tommy doesn't deserve that and I don't deserve that. And everybody's just got to make the choices to live as best as they can, as happy as they can, to always choose happiness and when I started this podcast, the Soul on Fire podcast, It's not just because I wanted to say, hey guys, look, I've set my soul on fire. I have this amazing life that I'm so passionate about and let me share that with you, share those tips. It was was that plus I remember what it's like to have a soul that is not on fire. (laughs) I think my soul was kind of on ice when I was going through the worst of everything that I just talked about. And of course, this is like, a story that if I were to tell you everything would take like 48 hours and this is the story condensed into an hour. So I hope I didn't skip over too much. 
um, so that you can understand where I'm coming from and maybe relate to parts of it. I know we've all gone through stress. We've all gone through difficult things. Um, In the Soul on Fire podcast tribe on Facebook alone, people shared their trauma stories with me and it really put mine into perspective. And I know that we have all been through something. No one has lived an easy life. It's just part of being a human. And um, I have to say, I am grateful that even with that traumatic experience and other traumas I've experienced, I feel very grateful that everything's coasting along now and things are fine. And I have overall led a very, very, very lucky wonderful life. And I am so grateful for that. And I wish that for everybody. I want that for everybody. And I am excited to do this solo podcast episode more often. I promise a lot of the topics will be a lot more carefree than this. Um, I do want to make you guys feel good not always talk about sad stuff or I shouldn't say always because I I never do on the podcast, but I did want to share something different today because there are different sides to everybody. We're all multifaceted. We have all been through something. And if I didn't share this with you guys, I would start to feel like I wasn't telling you everything. I wasn't sharing my all because it is a part of who I am. And I think it's shaped pretty much everything that I do now, um, my life that revolves around wellness and trying to make others happy and trying to live my happiest life. So I hope that you got something from this episode. I would love to hear your feedback. You can always write in the Facebook group, send me an email, send me a DM on Instagram and tell me what you thought. Um, Because this is new for me, just talking I can't believe I just talked for an hour into a microphone, but I can because the story was important to me to share and I felt like it was time to put it out there. So I hope everyone is doing well and I look forward to an episode coming out this Wednesday, our regular scheduled interviews. So stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for listening. If you've gotten this far, then... I appreciate you and I'll talk to you soon. Bye guys.